to episode 167 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 28th of February, 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan, Digwit, Graham, Hello, and Will. Hello! I stumbled over the 2022 there, I still can't believe it's uh, not 2019, but uh, there you go. Let's start with our discoveries then. Phelan, what is Pandas? Pandas is a data processing Python library, which allows you to do things like mess around with tables and export stuff to Excel and various other formats. And it's very cool. And I've got data that I need to build into a report for people automatically from a Django website. So I'm going to be using that. Why are all your discoveries Python based? Well, basically, when I make the mistake of using Bash, I then usually have to rewrite it in Python several hours later of gnashing of teeth and uh, crying desperately into my keyboard because I realized I should have used a proper language and therefore do it in Python. And you put a link 10 minutes to pandas. Yeah, it's just a very nice intro for anybody who maybe doesn't know what it is, isn't sure that they need to use it, then it's a very simple 10 minute intro where you can go through a whole load of the steps of how to use it and what it does. And I think it's quite good. I've heard a lot of talk about pandas frames, and I'd always wondered quite how that fitted in. But it sounds like it's a a mechanism to go from one format to another. So you could go from CSV to Excel, for example. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's almost like a sheet as well. Mm. Um, it's kind of like the, the active data set that you're working with right now. Now, I will put my hand on heart and say I am no expert in it currently, but I've gotten stuff exported and it worked quite well in mm. Excel for them. So job done. I do all the main processes in a DB anyway, but yeah. So Graham, yours is X suspender. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is something that um, I've used. It basically suspends applications that are running in the background. And by suspend, in Unix terms, it sends a six stop signal to them. It, it basically stops them running. And it's really good for those of us who never quit apps. You know, you just keep them all running in the background so you can switch between them. But they're still taking up resources. They're still taking up RAM and they're still taking up some CPU cycles, especially things like uh, Chromium and Firefox or VirtualBox. With X Suspender running, those processes actually stop and free all their resources just like you would if you hibernated your laptop. And then when you go back to them, they resume from the point there. Their cache is reloaded and they carry on from exactly where they were. So they don't even do anything in the background, which is another advantage. I mean, it doesn't work for everything, but it, it's, I found it to be really useful. I like how on the website it has a section, what users are saying. And the quote from Linus Torvalds is, this is very cool. And then a good home desktop user says, it's a real shame I cannot use it on Wayland. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the clue is in the name. But I, I, I tested it, this out and um, it works well. I mean, that that's what it does. I'm, I'm amazed because you read about it, you think this is something quite complicated. It's never going to work across many applications, but nearly everything I tried it, not everything, but almost everything I tried it with worked. Um, and for the things that don't work, it allows you to set up a custom script so you can set up your own kind of suspend resume routine for that specific application or process. I can't believe this website has made me see a logical and quite well thought out Eric S. Raymond quote. <laughs> Throughout a Unix system, easy things are easy and hard things are at least possible. Wow. Yeah, that's quite profound, isn't it? But true. Yeah, so if if you have a million tabs in your Firefox and you switch to another app, yeah, give it a go. It, it's a good way of freeing up those resources to do something else with while you're playing in a game or something. 
But how quickly do things come back to life? A couple of seconds. No more than that. And so you wouldn't wouldn't want to do it necessarily on things. It's perfect for web browsers and IDEs. It's perfect and virtual machines because you don't want to lose your place. You don't want to lose all those open tabs. And of course, you can save them. But it's quicker than reloading the browser and reloading all those tabs, um, but not quite as quick as switching between the apps. So it's kind of a middle ground, which frees up the resources. So you can just carry on exactly from the point you were at when you suspended it. I just can't see myself ever using something like this because I just don't leave things running that don't need to be. I'm quite, um, ironically, quite tidy with how I use my computer. I sit here with just the worst mess ever on my desk. But I like to have the minimum number of windows and applications running at once. If I'm not using it, I just close it and just reopen it again later. Is that because XFC has no application switching, yeah? No, XFC has application switching. It has virtual desktops if you want to use all that, but I just don't want want to do that. Well, I mean, my laptop's only got 8 gig of RAM. Oh, okay. This is why I started looking into it, and it really does... I, I can never remember these days how to get back to where I was. I usually just start from scratch. So if I've got something set up, like an IDE with all, you know, how you've got everything open at the exact point that you're thinking about when you go and do something else. It's a really good way of at least freeing the resources from that thing so that your PC can do something else without you having to close it. Fair enough. Well, I'm sure some people will uh, get use out of this. So, Will, yours is about controlling lights again. <laughs> <laughs> Are you that lazy? Well, this is pretty lights rather than just on-off lights. So WLED is an Arduino program which brings together lots of other projects and puts it into a really nice, easy-to-consume, easy-to-use format. You can flash it onto Arduinos, onto ESP8266s, onto ESP32s. It's all self-contained. It's got a web browser on there, a really nice, uh, sorry, a web server on there, a really nice UI that's that's easy to use. And it's got a whole load of other features baked in that really make it easy to use and, and just a pleasure to stick on your network. It will emulate Philips Hughes devices so you can integrate them with um, Alexa. You can sync them together. So if you've got more than one LED strip, you can get them all pulsing at the same time, or you can build a very complex sort of network of of devices. You can install a little agent running on your PC that will listen to your microphone or your, your whatever's producing audio and sync the lights to that. So you can switch this thing on, load up whatever your music app is on your Linux desktop, run a couple of commands, and then all the music will sync with the lights, and it's all very good. So it's a yeah, a really fun project, really easy to get into, really easy to use, great community, loads and loads of light effects. It uses fast LED under the covers to do all the effects, and there's some really amazing stuff in that library. Um, so yeah, check it out. I'm just picturing your house as looking like a really tacky nightclub for some reason. That's exactly <laughs> it. That's what I'm going for. Lounge suits only. <laughs> and not only my house, but my garden as well. All <laughs> yeah, right, fair enough. All right, well, mine's not as fancy as that. And I'm sure loads of people have already tried this, but I've been checking out Quick MU and Quick GUI. So Martin Wimpress, friend of the show, made Quick MU, which is... It's really just scripts to make virtualization with KVM really, really easy on Linux. And then Quick GUI is a pretty basic Flutter front end for it, written by Mark Johnson and Yannick Maure. 
Mark Johnson, of course, of Ubuntu podcast fame. And this isn't doing anything revolutionary. It's not doing anything that you can't do yourself. It just makes setting up virtual machines really, really easy. And I've tested this with Windows 10 and Windows 11, and those can be a bit of a pain in the ass, particularly Windows 11 with getting all of the uh, TPM stuff sorted and all of that. This just takes care of it for you. So I just added the PPA, installed it, and then the command line syntax is really straightforward, or you can just use this simple GUI, and you can just get a Windows 11 VM going in minutes. And I tried with macOS, but I tried the very latest one. Monterey, is it? I can't remember. And that didn't work. I don't think that's officially supported. Obviously, it supports loads of Linux distributions as well, but they're pretty easy to get going anyway. I use Vert Manager for that. But for the stuff that's a little bit fiddly to get going, this is absolutely brilliant. If you just need a Windows 11 VM just to test something, this is, I think, the easiest way to do it. Yeah, I'm intrigued by what he's actually doing with this to get it to run because I mean it does use QMU underneath, which is what Libvirt uses as well. So I'm I, I've siphoned some data from you of it running, and I'm going to compare the two of them, try and figure it out because there's probably things to be imported into a standard Libvirt running container as well. Yeah, no doubt. And what's great about it is that it just creates a folder in your home directory for each virtual machine, and it just puts all of the shit that you need for it in there automatically downloads the ISO and fires up the the VM and it's got spice integration so you can have like proper resizing and everything it's brilliant nice yeah i tried this uh, when martin first released it and found it really good it's basically like um a memory aid rather than having to remember those long convoluted commands to configure everything cause that you need mm. you can just run quick mu and then basically the name of a VM but the name of the the OS that you want it's great really good project and it's just bash isn't it yeah it's pretty straightforward it's just pretty much him doing the work for you that you could do yourself Mm. it's just him saving everyone a bunch of time yeah and just looking at the uh github repository there's like four and a half thousand stars so lots of people have found some benefit from it yeah i think it made it to hacker news and stuff at some point so i'd be surprised if people listening have never heard of it but uh, if you've been thinking about giving it a try definitely do it's brilliant and uh, thanks, Martin, for doing the work. Four and a half thousand stars and 212 forks. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Merge that, motherfucker. <laughs> Doesn't do the option I want. <laughs> it's not got a flat pack. <laughs> Fedim, you've got another one, Subnet Calc. Yeah, this is for people to stop using those websites that just claim to help you calculate <laughs> subnets when you could just do it on the command line anyway. This is how I make myself look really good to uh, clients on a phone call when they ask for a subnet for a, a range, and I just seem to be able to think of it straight off the bat. Uh, no, I'm terrible at subnet calc. And uh, yeah, this helps you pick out the ranges, and it's nice because you can put an IP into a CIDR range, and then uh, it'll tell you that it's a host in what particular part of the range, or help you determine where somebody's cocked up and they're using like a slash 25 when they should use a slash 26 or whatever. So it's uh, very handy if you do network and stuff. And the website is really class. It's like proper, like 1998 style mm. with that textured background. Yeah. Back when the internet was good. <laughs> Not even Web 2.0, never mind Web 3. I bet there's probably marquee and blink tags in there as well. <laughs> 
Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. And just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support for details there. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And that includes this show, as well as Linux After Dark and Linux Downtime. And if you want to get in contact, show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. And first of all, Elliot was a bit confused when I say, if you want to get in contact, show at latenightlinux.com. Elliot took a while to realize that that is an email address. So yes, that's what I mean. Email us, show at latenightlinux.com. Elliot's probably young. They don't know what email is. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. Does the postman deliver those? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yusuf decided to troll failure, I think. I've been using Linux for four years now, and I keep switching between desktop environments and window managers depending on moods, etc. I noticed that some desktop environments that receive a lot of attention are the ones that focus on new things all the time instead of fixing their bugs. I'm looking at you, KDE. Wrong. <laughs> As an example of this, I came across an annoying KDE bug that has been there for 10 years and reported by many people throughout the years, but no one bothered to fix it. This bug only affects people with non-US keyboards. Well, I think you might have hit that on the head there. I'm Moroccan and my keyboard is French. And I feel that if this was an issue related to US keyboard, everyone would lose their minds. This does not only affect French, but any keyboard that relies heavily on accented characters. Hang on, that's you failing with your funky Irish. Exactly. And I was about to take the point with this, is the fact that the French keyboard is the least normal keyboard on the face of the universe, because the accented keys are where the numbers are. Oh. And to get a number, you press a shift key. Oh, so you don't do like Alt-GR like on the German keyboard? No. So that's that's why this bug is so weird. Because I looked into it. I went through the bug. And it is a really very complicated bug because some of the features of QT don't actually support this weird mode of a accented character being a non-modified key based one. And they have put some work into it. And there are some updates. And it looks like they might be getting close to fixing it. Maybe. I don't know. But the problem is, when you do any of this stuff, you involve X or Wayland and QT and KD. It's a very niche bug, if, if you ask me. I don't think it's a very... It's not like my windows don't load up on the desktop. It's a very strange shortcut key. So there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, he continues. I'd love to use KDE, but I don't want to change my keyboard workflow every time I use it. But this is not just about KDE and this particular bug, but how we always value what is new and shiny instead of fixing the issues, especially if they don't affect Americans. 
I realize that this is free software and no one is required to do anything, but do you think devs have a duty to fix a bug? Especially one that affects many people and has been reported over and over again in Reddit posts, forums, and directly to KDE for 10 years. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I love KDE and the work they do, but I just lose trust when I see a case like this. Am I wrong in feeling like that? Yes. Well, obviously you're going to say that about KDE, but but what do we think about this constant chase for the new and shiny and never just fixing the old stuff and making it rock solid? This seems like a familiar ground to me in how I started in podcasting with Linux Luddites. This was like our whole thing reigning against this. But people want the new and shiny, don't they? They don't want stability and XFCE. Well, most people at least. I don't think that's entirely fair because if you look at Nate's weekly newsletter you see the amount of bugs that get fixed all the time there i think to to make it out that it's only new and shiny i I think it's a bit disingenuous maybe i think there is a real problem in that people are doing this in their free time and they want to do stuff that's new and exciting and don't necessarily want to go back and do the boring debugging or the documentation or whatever that happens to be i can kind of understand it both ways and there is nothing worse than a bug where you can't replicate it yourself because you don't have a French keyboard or something. Or, you know, a specific instance of the bug that affects, you know, obviously a fair amount of people, which is totally understandable. But unless you get a French person to help you recreate it, maybe you can't actually do that. I mean, I've seen um, there's like voting and things like that, which has worked quite well. So people vote on the bugs that they want to get fixed and then developers promise to put some development time to it. We could probably improve things, but it's difficult. It's just so difficult when you're relying on people doing it themselves, on you know, without being paid. I think people need to bear in mind the scale of the problem that we're talking about. Ubuntu does a really good job with this with errors.ubuntu.com. If you go to that website, you'll see a graph load up and that shows a relative number of, uh, of errors that have been reported by Whoopsie, the error reporting system. And the top bug there at the moment has got 23,000 occurrences in the last, oh, I don't know, the last couple of days or month or something. And then after that, it's really the long tail of bugs. And something like uh, a sort of relatively niche keyboard bug is the long tail of bugs. And when you've got... 23,000 bug reports of one particular bug and maybe 10 or something of another bug, then yeah, the, the, the 10 are not going to get any attention. I think it's very, very likely that there are much more important crashes and bugs that affect a massive number of people. And people, understandably, don't see the whole scope of their uh, of the problems that the developers have got to try and fix. There are relatively few developers and an enormous number of bugs. And so they need to focus their energy on things that are interesting and things that are actually affecting everybody. So the, the reality is that they don't owe you a bug fix the source code is available, so you know patch is welcome and that kind of excuse. But the re- the reality is that there are more important bugs to fix, and those rightfully are the ones that do get fixed. And also, I know that they've said that they could fix it themselves, but they can't. Something like this is the the ideal opportunity to try and learn something about how how the software works, and maybe even try and do it yourself. It's a really satisfying, interesting thing to do, um, especially when you suffer from a problem like this yourself and you can fix it. That's how I got into it. I wish I'd never discovered errors.ubuntu.com. I never knew of this page, and it's given me hives just looking at it. Will, you're in charge of a team of devs, right? 
do you not feel a pressure from higher above you to implement new shiny stuff rather than doing the boring legwork of fixing the old bugs and making things like 100% work all the time? It's a constant balance, but as with all things these days, it's based on data. And so if you're able to measure the impact of a bug and say that there are uh, you know, millions of people affected or it's having a catastrophic effect on the performance, then it goes into the backlog. And if there are more important things to be worked on, then there are more important things to be worked on. The business will help you decide whether new shiny is more important than fixing a particular bug. And th- there is a, a decision to be made, and it is usually quite clear cut. Is this fixing this bug going to improve things more than landing this new feature? And those are the the engineering manager's bread and butter, making those decisions about what the relative impact is and what should be prioritized. So Everybody wants to work on new features for sure, but everybody also understands the importance of, of going back and fixing bugs. But if not everybody is affected by it, if it's a an edge case or a niche bug, then the relative importance goes right down. I guess that is the beauty of a fast system where even if that bug doesn't affect that many people, but you can fix it, you can still get it in there when in a project that has to be funded and developed, you, you wouldn't necessarily have that option. Yeah, and if you can't do it yourself, you can always pay someone to do it, can't you? You can always pay a contractor and then get them to submit the code upstream. And I'm sure that you would happily accept that as long as it was good quality and did the job. And it is possible to have a bug which is urgent but not important or not important and urgent. Those like two opposite ends of the spectrum can coexist in one bug, which makes it difficult. But there is always a trade-off and the answer is usually quite apparent. So Alex writes in, recently you guys are talking about whether Linux gaming is viable. And I have to say, I've absolutely been able to run every game that I've wanted to in Linux via Proton across a variety of hardware requirements and on a laptop, no less. Granted, I have access to a decent machine, either Asus ROG Zephyrus G15 with an NVIDIA 3070 and an AMD CPU or a Lenovo ThinkPad P1 Gen 4, also NVIDIA 3070 with an Intel CPU. And the Asus one in particular relied heavily on asuslinux.org custom kernel work. Also a fair bit of tinkering for the more recent titles, such as running modified versions of Proton from Glorious Eggroll and checking protondb.com for launch commands to enable DLSS and the like, or to get around crashes. But with all that said, the games I've been playing that come to mind are Red Dead Redemption 2, Horizon Zero Dawn, can't wait for Forbidden West, whatever that is. Cyberpunk 2077, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. This one was especially tricky given the Ubisoft launcher and not being available on Steam. Monster Hunter World and Rise and Control. Getting these games to run and run well reminds me of the old days, messing with autoexec.bat and config.sys to set memory allocation and sound card settings to run games. I guess I'm old and enjoy tinkering, hence Linux, but it really does work. Maybe not for everyone, but surely for the hosts and listeners of this show. Well, that really sums it up, that last bit. Maybe not for everyone. Yeah, no shit. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, I only had to jump through these million hoops and it worked perfectly. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, okay. People who listen to this show are willing to do that, or some of them are. I'm not. Well, yeah, exactly. And Alex, what you've laid out there 
is a damning indictment <laughs> of gaming on Linux. It's not what you thought you were doing there, I'm afraid. You thought you were saying, hey, it's great. But that is a shit show, what you've described there. And, and maybe the Steam Deck's going to improve things. Uh, we can only hope. But that was not a good advert, Alex, I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry. I think it was. I think it shows that there's a market for someone to take those bits and just polish them a fraction. And that's exactly what the Linux desktop environment is. There's like, think back to the early distros. I mean, it was a nightmare to get them installed, let alone find out if you got all the right kernel bits and pieces to get like your, I remember the first one I had on the laptop, the DVD wouldn't do DMA. So play the DVD stopped after 10 seconds, then load the buffer again. It was an absolute nightmare. And I had to recompile a kernel to do that, where you don't have to do that these days. So people are going to be able to put all those tiny little polishy bits in. And I think that's that's a good thing. At least it's possible. Yeah, I think it's a good thing as well. We've seen with the Steam Deck uh, reviews that Proton has been improving dramatically. Even in the background, there's been a game that has been unplayable last week that becomes playable this week and people trying this out they're at the cutting edge but perhaps in a year's time these things will just work out of the box and i can see many of those titles are in like the proton steam deck compatibility list for as platinum so maybe the experience it'll just get better and people at least don't have to maybe have the windows linux dual boot just for playing some of these games if they can have some idea that they can run them counterpoint I swear I read in one of those deck reviews that someone, when they first got the device, was able to play, it might have been Cyberpunk or something, but then by the end of the two weeks that they'd been testing it, it had stopped working. So I think it can go the other way as well. Yeah, I didn't see that, but it doesn't surprise me. I guess they're changing things and that might break compatibility, especially with cutting-edge stuff like DLSS, which changes the rendering resolution of the bit that you're focusing on. Um, this is real cutting-edge stuff, um, and it's amazing that Linux is capable of doing it at all. It is amazing that people will go to the effort and jump through the hoops to do it. And maybe, maybe someone will put together all of these fixes in one, but it just seems like that's an impossible task because every game needs different fixes. And Valve is maybe the company to do it, but I suppose we'll have to see. And we had yet more trolling of you, failing. Yeah, Chris wrote in to say, how can I get my KDE Plasma widgets to stay put? I add widgets to the desktop and position and resize them to my liking and everything is fine for the remainder of that session. But the next time I log in, the widgets have moved and altered in size and not the way that I left them. Reading on the internet suggests deleting the old config file. I did this and everything was reset to default layout, i.e. no widgets. But then that did not solve the problem. Once again, alterations I made to the position and size of widgets that I added were not maintained between sessions. What am I doing wrong? Using KDE. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phelan and Graham, what's Chris's uh, solution here? This sounds very familiar, doesn't it, Phelan? It does a bit, yeah. I mean, I have this, you know, for tracking aircraft, I've got a map. And because I have a inverse L-shaped desktop where one of my monitors is on the left is standing tall and the other two are uh what the fuck is it called landscape landscape thank you is that for watching your tiktoks it is yeah yeah <laughs> Honestly, I, I need a tiktok screen because i'm so with it um but it's down below the other two monitors and i always assumed that kd was just going oh this is not possible this is a minus resolution that i'm going to throw you up the top of the screen because it always appears back up along the sort of horizon level. But 
it turns out, I think, that this is a X-Randa-R versus plasma resolution issue. I mean, it is a bug. Now, how it gets fixed, I'm not sure. But I think it'd be worth either finding a bug and tacking along to it or logging it yourself if there's something strange about your setup or is it a 4K monitor that changes resolutions depending on when, when you log in. I mean, we didn't get a lot of info in it, so we can't exactly resolve it ourselves. But I think it's something to do with that. I could be wrong, but that's what I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I I have experienced this with virtual machines in particular because I'm often changing the resolution of those or or when you drag the Windows Edge, for example, and resize the display. And I've just accepted that I need to reconfigure the widgets afterwards. Um, I haven't really properly considered that this is a bug, but it is. Yeah. And, you know, within the time space of 19 years, it might be fixed. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll probably be talking about what's been going on in the Linux and open source world news. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.